Hey there, Outside In listeners. This is Sam. We are coming to you this week with something slightly different. We've got a bunch of more traditional Outside In episodes that we're very excited to be sending your way in the very near future. But frankly, that pandemic life has made everything a little more complicated for us, too. And some of them are taking a tiny bit longer to finish than we had originally planned. But the team that is Outside In contains multitudes. We also produce a broadcast show every week for the honest-to-goodness terrestrial radio. And there's some pretty great stuff that gets onto the airwaves, too. So this week, we are bringing you a special treat. Some of our favorite broadcast extras from recent months. Now, for starters, the last episode in our feed was about a kind of scary possibility. The idea that a huge solar storm might lead to catastrophic blackouts of the world's electricity grids. Uh, Yes, hit me with it. 20 to 40 million Americans without power. Okay. For somewhere between, and this is a big range here, 16 days to one or two years. Two years, Taylor? I'm not finished. Total economic... Now, to me, this was actually a pretty hopeful episode because while it would be a disaster if we didn't plan for this possibility, it's also a pretty easy problem to solve with a little foresight. It's the equivalent of an extra 50 cents per year, you know, about the cost of a postage stamp. But judging from the reactions that we got on Twitter, some folks (laughs) heard this story as just another disaster to be anxious about on top of the ongoing pandemic, and not to mention the grim possibilities presented by climate change. And all of that ambient danger affects our brains. I think there are multiple ways uh, that the coronavirus actually affects our brain. Um, A big one is that it constantly keeps our brains in a panic mode. That's journalist Stephanie Fu, former producer for This American Life and Rosalind Carter Mental Health Fellow. She's writing a book on healing from complex PTSD, which is a form of post-traumatic stress disorder caused when trauma is recurring, like in the case of child abuse or neglect. I mean, I really think that trauma is the most contagious disease there is. I think it is a real health crisis. Stephanie Fu wrote an article for Vox. The headline is, My PTSD Can Be a Weight, But In This Pandemic, It Feels Like a Superpower. Here's our producer, Justine Paradise, speaking with Stephanie Fu about her article and the intersections of mental health and disaster. Yeah, so um, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD in 2018. And uh, when I was first diagnosed, um, everything I read about complex PTSD made it seem like I had a disability of some sort. There were so many upsetting um, symptoms that I read about that I recognized in myself, like sudden aggression or depression or anxiety or like an unhealthy relationship to my abuser or dissociation. And I just thought, this makes me a freak. This makes me not normal. But after the pandemic started and we started um, sheltering in place in New York City, um, I found myself in this weird position where it seemed like everyone else around me was freaking out a lot more than I was. I was actually strangely calm. Hmm. And it brought up, um, I started thinking about some conversations that I'd had with my therapist before the pandemic, where he essentially told me that PTSD is only a mental illness in times of peace and calm. Because in times of war, um, 
PTSD is actually this amazing adaptation. Like our brains are trying to protect us. They're not trying to betray us in this evil way. They've just taught us like this is how you behave in war. You are hypervigilant. You know, you prepare <laughs> for the worst. You you are anxious. And so in that way, because everybody else is feeling that right now, I am totally sane. This is a totally rational response. And because I've had much more experience than most people in dealing with this sort of everyday constant barrage of threat, I'm actually handling this way better than a lot of uh, my quote unquote, you know, well-balanced, well-bred friends around me. Right. The neurotypical. <laughs> neurotypical. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm empathetic and there are definitely hard days. I don't want to say that this every person with PTSD or depression or anxiety um, is thriving right now, but some of us are. Um, and I think it's kind of been really healing for me, actually, because it's made me understand that this isn't a disability. It's actually a healthy adaptation in some situations and in times of crisis or high stress it can make me a really valuable resource to society um i'm here for people you know yeah i've been able to contribute and stay calm and stay productive um and help people move their way through um panic attacks and moments of terror um and I think that's a really powerful thing because I think one of the worst symptoms of anxiety, OCD, complex PTSD is this level of self-loathing and shame. And this has been tremendous in alleviating some of that shame. What does a kind of ever-present, like, invisible threat, like like a coronavirus pandemic, um, what does it do to our brains in terms of stress? When we're afraid, our bodies and our brains pump stress chemicals through our body, like cortisol and adrenaline. And these actually activate um, panic centers in our brain. They can turn off our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that controls logic and reasoning, and it can um, sort of set off our amygdala which is the part of the brain that controls the fight or flight response. Um, so essentially going into fight, flight, or freeze mode might mean that we are aggressive, uh, that we might be oddly eating a lot of food, that we might be strangely lazy, like we might not be able to do work or fill out spreadsheets. And that's totally normal because if you see a bear or something in the woods, um, it doesn't make sense that you would have this completely rational response. No, you would just want to run. Um, you would want to get away. You'd want to scream. And so that's kind of this very natural adaptation that our brains are doing and trying to protect us when we are this afraid. What are some tools or techniques, um, like an example of one maybe, that people could use to, um, if they're feeling like, oh, this lack of focus, that's not being in my body, that's me. How can, I, how can I recenter myself and get my brain out of survival mode? So the part of our brain that has these sort of toxic, cyclical thoughts of just like, oh no, what am I going to do? I'm a piece of crap. Oh my God. Actually can't really function at the same time as the part of your brain that is... Um, 
taking in your surroundings in a really slow and purposeful way. Um, and so what are called grounding exercises, it sounds a little woo-woo, but it's actually scientifically um, grounded in fact, um, can really, really work. Um, so these are mindfulness techniques like um doesn't need to be meditation if meditation is really intimidating for you you can simply do things like pay attention to your breathing for a few minutes um listen really really intently to a beautiful song um look outside and really pay close attention to the breeze and the bird song or eat something it could be anything you could treat yourself with a piece of chocolate and just eat it really slowly and focus like what does this taste like in different parts of my mouth? Like, um, what are the textures that I'm experiencing? How are the textures changing? Just being really observant in a super, super mindful way can be really helpful. Of course, if you're going through a major panic attack, you're freaking out, you're overwhelmed, it can be really difficult to slow down that much. And so one really easy technique that I have done and that works for me in terms of taking me from like a 10 to like a six is um, just counting the red things or the blue things in a room. Again, it, it's that same part of the brain that is just noticing and it counteracts the brain that is worrying around trying to create some terrifying narrative for yourself. It's It's been really helpful for me um, learning about just how my brain works. It, it's kind of like you get to hack the computer a little bit. Also, I think it's really important to like reach out and talk to people. It's okay to be vulnerable right now. This just feels like, like the coronavirus pandemic feels like it might be one of many disasters that will face sort of collectively in our lifetimes, like um, specifically thinking about climate change and frequency of like intense and chaotic weather events or sort of droughts or more... I mean, climate change is sort of chronically um, difficult to point to and be like, this is climate change. But mm -hmm. but the sense of this threat and this this um, this thing that we'll be we'll be all facing, this might be a tool that like becomes um, more and more useful for a lot more of us to be able to like regulate our, our brains and our anxiety. Yeah, I think that. I mean, even without massive um, apocalyptic issues. I think mm -hmm. that mental health has been a real and a, and a growing problem in America for a very long time. There's some crazy statistic where it's like one in five people um, are dealing with some mental health issue. And I think there's some truth behind that saying hurt people hurt people. I think that the more you are traumatized by horrible things in the world. It could be child abuse. It could be losing your home in a tornado. It could be, you know, losing your mother to coronavirus at a young age. It could be being separated from your parents at the border. I think these things have very lasting impacts on the way that we function. And these traumatic events have the potential to give us a sense of entitlement or hurt that makes us less sensitive to the hurt of other people around us. And I think when you have so much trauma abounding, 
the way to prevent that trauma from sort of having these shock waves of hurt that just keep resonating out within our community is to protect mental health, is to make these people feel loved and cared for and safe so we don't spread this trauma and this hurt around to other people, um, that instead we are able to spread kindness and have that be the shockwaves that are resonating within our community is love and generosity and gratitude for each other. Next up, we're revisiting our story about the passenger pigeon and what we can say for sure about New England before Europeans arrived. People were looking for things like large-scale land clearing, intensive farming, because in my opinion, they were seeing that wrongfully as a sign of sophistication. That's after this. Okay, this is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And a couple of months ago, we did a story about the pitched debate over the pre-colonial population of the passenger pigeon. While that was an episode about the evidence regarding whether there were or were not billions of pigeons for tens of thousands of years, it was also a story about the way that people interpreting that evidence speaks to a larger story of what we think we know about how indigenous peoples used the environment before Europeans overran the Americas. And that story, the narrative of how Native American people interacted with the environment, has shifted a lot in the past 50 years, and in a profound way, quite recently. My name is Elizabeth Chilton. I'm a professor of anthropology here at Binghamton University, and I'm an archaeologist who's been studying Native peoples, particularly uh, prior to European settlement um, in New England and New York for the past 30 years or so. Elizabeth was one of the co-authors of a paper published in Nature Sustainability at the beginning of this year. The paper was called Conservation Implications of Limited Native American Impacts on Pre-Contact New England. And it made a splash. Well, I think the Newsweek headline was something like Native Americans barely had any impact on the landscape. Uh, Words to that effect. Another headline called the study incendiary. It was clear that Elizabeth and her co-authors had challenged a narrative, a narrative of conservation and how exactly Native American people historically influenced the natural landscape. In the 60s and 70s, Elizabeth explains, the story was... While European colonists used the landscape, Native people were almost part of the landscape. Native peoples were living in harmony with the land, that there were was relatively minimal impact, and that the uh, settlement of Europeans was really what wreaked havoc with the environment and also, of course, Native societies. Then, archaeologists and historians started to challenge that idea. In 1983, environmental historian William Cronin published a book called Changes in the Land, which recast the landscape that Europeans saw when they arrived in New England, not as a wilderness, but as a garden, a garden tended by indigenous societies. Among other things, he argued that Native people not only used fire to dramatically reshape the landscape, but even hunted animals to extinction on occasion. 
this line of thinking. Rather than seeing Native peoples as passively reacting to Europeans and the colonization process, really sought to understand the, the role of Native American individual and community agency in those interactions. It was part of a needed corrective, a change of narrative course in the archaeological community. But in doing so, I think there started to be assumptions about what that meant for how Native peoples were utilizing the landscape uh, before European contact. So people were looking for things like large-scale land clearing, intensive farming, because in my opinion, they were seeing that wrongfully as a sign of sophistication, as civilization, as advancement, if you will. This bugged Elizabeth. She felt the new narrative imposed European standards of what constitutes a sophisticated society on native people. But also, she thought, some of the evidence these theories were based on was actually unreliable. I challenged the use of historic documents by Europeans to, to describe native societies going back a thousand years. I just do not believe you can do that. The European documents were not written to be historical necessarily or ethnographic documents. They were written for political and economic purposes. Even if they were accurate, Elizabeth says, these accounts, kind of by necessity, were accounts of Native American societies only after contact. You know, some of the accounts talk about large clearings of land, but others talk about flexibility, impermanence, about seeing half a hundred of wigwams together, but then two days later, they've all been dispersed. So they're, I, I don't want to say they're conflicting accounts, but I want to say they express a kind of diversity um, so that if one wanted to use European accounts to support one's model, you could probably find someone to agree with you. Um, so I said, let's just look at the archaeological evidence. And what I found in New England was that there was no evidence for year-round settled farming villages. There was no evidence for warfare. And the environmental piece, what I found was that there was evidence for a broad and varied diet, including hundreds of species of plants and animals. After her dissertation, Elizabeth got to know other academics looking at the same thing, but through different disciplines, not only archaeologists like her, but foresters and climatologists. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could all get together and study this issue from a multidisciplinary perspective? And that took some years. Elizabeth and her co-authors looked not only at the archaeological evidence, but also at paleoecological data. They studied pollen in lake sediment cores and analyzed data from 1,800 archaeological sites on the New England coast. They looked for evidence of certain kinds of pollen, signatures that would tell them what kind of forest they were looking at closed or open canopy. At the same time, they looked for evidence of fires and patterns of burning. Beyond sort of typical lightning strikes and beyond typical small domestic fires, you know, were they using fire to clear large tracts of land? The results were dramatic. The pollen record showed closed canopy forests all the way up to European colonization. The only real significant change was after European contact. And it is literally as if a light switch went off. And we start to see large-scale land clearing and fire use for clearing um, right after the time of European colonization.
Was this a surprise to you when you when you when you saw it? It was. Um, I was surprised that we didn't see peaks of higher fire activity during the late archaic period. That's the three to five thousand years ago when we know that there were population increases among native peoples. Um, and I was also surprised that we didn't see an increase in detectable fire activity after 1000 AD when we know that uh, the farming of maize, bees, and squash was increasing. Now, I do want to underscore, though, that because we're looking for evidence of large-scale change, this does not deny that there would have been localized adaptations and small-scale farming uh, that would have not substantially changed the the, the closed canopy forests. Um, but that's where I think people have been concerned about our conclusions, is they're concerned that our conclusions minimize the impacts that Native peoples may have had uh, on their local environments. After drawing these conclusions, those first-hand European accounts start to sound a little different. In the Connecticut River Valley, during the 17th century, once there were permanent European settlements, then oftentimes Native peoples were essentially required, and sometimes by force, to be more sedentary, to stay in one place, to not be moving their, their settlements seasonally the way they had for millennia. And in doing so, then they would have to increase farming uh, because hunter-gatherers need to be able to move their their settlements seasonally to exploit different species of plants and animals. And if you must become sedentary, then you're going to increase your use of farming, clearing, and maybe even burning to clear land. Um, so by the time Europeans were writing about a number of, um, of their accounts of Native peoples, there had already been substantial changes. And regarding the controversy and the headlines that call their study incendiary. You know, it was very unfortunate because a lot of people were, were incensed. I mean, I have worked with Native American communities and, and tribes, and I felt like in a way this was really seeming to downplay the complexity, the diversity, the sophistication, the great antiquity of their societies. So on the one hand, Yes, I could understand why people were upset. On the other hand, I also know that it got a lot of people's attention. <laughs> you know, we certainly did not intend to do that. In fact, we belabored our choice of headline when we published um, what other people have done with it. Um, you know, on the one hand is unfortunate, but our hope is that by calling attention to it and, and asking people to actually read the study and engage with it and test it in other locations, that's what we're hoping is going to happen. Yeah. It does seem that the field of archaeology has been criticized for being overwhelmingly Eurocentric. And as a result, there's been a correction towards, first of all, recognizing Native agency, which, as you say, is a good trend, but perhaps over-ascribing uh, impacts to natural systems to Native people. And I, I guess what I'm wondering is where we're at in the swinging of that pendulum. And, I mean, how should folks think about the Native societies that were here 
before Europeans arrived and their complexity and and their culture, I guess. Well, I mean, I would say that archaeologists for the past, oh, 50 years or so have really sought to push against this unilineal evolutionary model that human societies inevitably move from being hunter-gatherers to farmers to so-called civilized societies in urban settings. That notion that that is inevitable and that all points lead to that, um, their archaeologists largely have really tried to push against that and um, try to understand what were the processes that did lead to decisions in various societies across the globe to go in that direction, um, to not see it as superior, to not see it as inevitable, to understand what the drawbacks of living in cities and urban areas are, um, where did warfare come from, uh, disease, you know, you name it, all of those are effects of the origins of agriculture and the increased urbanization over time. Um, so really, in our study, we wanted to test that hypothesis, you know, is it just that human societies became increasingly sophisticated over time in southern New England and, and were the ones driving the changes that we see in the environment? Or were people, uh, you know, really the way evolution is supposed to work is that people are supposed to be adapting to their current conditions. That is what evolutionary and success in evolution means is to adapt to current situation, not to be ever moving forward in some kind of idealized end result. Um, because as the environment changes, some of which humans control, some of which we don't, um, we will need to adapt. So to me, the, the takeaway is actually inspiring to think about what native societies were doing for millennia before Europeans showed up in New England is exactly what we should be thinking about and asking those questions today. Outside In was produced this week by Justine Paradise and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Taylor Quimby. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Filling Your Brain with Shockwaves of Kindness. Remember, next week is our virtual trivia night. It will be Thursday, May 21st at 7 p.m. There is still time to register. Any gift at any amount will get you in the door, but a gift of 20 bucks a month will get you invited to our VVIP, Virtual Very Important Person, early bird zoom room a couple of us from the show will be there early to chat and answer any questions you have about the show about what it takes to put together or really anything give online at our website outsideinradio.org music in this episode was by blue dot sessions our theme music was made by breakmaster cylinder outside in is a production of new hampshire public radio 